So this week, we're continuing our mini-series through the Gospel of Mark called The Norm, Blueprints for Normal Christianity. Uh, of course, we have children in the room today, so the kid factor is there, and that's okay. We want everyone to kind of just remember this is family. We're relaxed, so don't worry. Your kids get crazy. My kids better not get crazy because I'm coming after you after service. Um, whatever it takes that we're okay because everyone is, is good. So if you would, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. We'll be starting in verse 38. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, or some of the edge of the, of the rows. We also will have some of the scriptures for today up on the screen. Um, Zachary is working the, uh, the, the computer back there, so um, he's going to be going advancing the button uh, hopefully in a very good way. If not, we'll get Ryan back there to help him or John Carlo. So it's just good. Zachary is my son. He is seven years old. So, okay. So we've got a lot to cover today. So let's go ahead and just get started. Um, today we're going to look and see um, another blueprint in our list of blueprints that Jesus is teaching us. And today we're going to look and see how God is calling every believer without exception, to be a people who will fight for the salvation and the holiness and the well-being of others within his church. Let me say that again, that God is calling every believer, without exception, to be a people who is willing to fight for the salvation and the holiness and the well-being of others within his church. Over the past few weeks, we've been seeing Jesus teaching his disciples these blueprints for what we call normal Christianity. Things that every Christian, no matter what your age is, no matter how far along in the walk you are with Christ, that you should be maturing and doing these things normally in your life. But through these teachings that he's been teaching his disciples, through these things that he's been doing, we've seen that his disciples just tend to fail constantly. That they're constantly failing. And they, every time he teaches them something, they fail. They mess up. Every time that he does one thing and he says, do this, do that, they tend to not do this and not do that. They just keep getting it wrong over and over and over again. Very frustrating. And they, you see, we're always pursuing, they're always pursuing their kingdom versus God's kingdom. The disciples were always concerned about their way of life and what they wanted to do in their life versus what God wanted them to do in the way that God had planned out his kingdom for them. And this week is no exception. This week we're going to see that John makes a huge mistake. The disciple John is going to make a huge mistake this week. And, and as we start looking into the lesson, we're going to see that Jesus corrects him with the way that his father's kingdom would expect him to be going. Not John's kingdom, but God's kingdom. And through John's mistake, I want us to see that how similar we can be to John. That we as human beings, that we as family and friends and people here on this earth, that we can be just like the disciple John in this moment when he failed Jesus. And I want us to see the redemption that John will go through eventually at the end of the story. How we too, even though we might fail at something for Jesus, eventually God will redeem us if we continue to be there, devoted to him. So let's get started. Uh, for, go back, Zach. <laughs> Maybe Zach shouldn't do the, 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 the screen. Mark chapter 9, verse 38 is where we're going to get started. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. John said to him, teacher, he said, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does the mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of my name. And the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. John's mistake here is pretty plain to see. If you read verse 38 again, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Following who? Following us. Not you. Following us. John's mistake is this, that he was focused on his own kingdom yet again. Notice he did not say, Lord, we tried to stop someone because they were not following you. He said they were not following us. He turned it from Jesus-centered to personal-centered, not following us. John and the other disciples were out and about, and they see this other believer in Christ, this new believer in Christ, this guy. And as they're walking through the town, this guy is trying to cast out a demon, which is common um, you know, for most believers in Christ to be practicing the powers that God has given them. And he's trying to cast out a demon from a guy. And the disciples see this. They're like, well, who is that guy? He's not one of the 12. He's not part of our little Jesus clique. And instead of being excited for this guy and rooting him on and trying to say, look, this young guy, this young believer with such enthusiasm and zeal for the Lord, instead of trying to lift him up and say, hey, man, good job. Uh, I mean, praise God for what you're doing. They say, man, stop that. Like, you're not, you're not part of us. You're not part of this Christian clique, this Christ-centered clique, this, this Jesus super club that we're in. You're not one of the 12. You're not following us. Stop that. You're embarrassing us. And they tried to stop him because they were not part, he was not part of their clique. Not only was that the problem, the other problem, you can imagine the embarrassment upon the disciples because just uh, two weeks ago we talked about earlier in chapter 9 how Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons back in like chapter 6. And they had tried to practice this authority back in, earlier in a the, in the couple of weeks ago in chapter 9, and they failed. And I remember that whenever the, uh, the man with the daughter, or the man with the, um, the child comes up, and he says, this child is, has a demon in them. And the disciples tried to cast out the demon, and they couldn't do it. So Jesus had to come in and take care of business. But here we see another guy who's not even part of the disciples group casting out a demon. So can you imagine the embarrassment on the disciples' faces when they walked up and here's a guy who was not even a part of their clique doing the thing that they couldn't do. It's embarrassing to them. And so they have a lot of pride there. So much pride that they tried to stop the guy. Hey, you can't do that. If we can't do that, you can't do that. And it's a reminder of us that we can't, that we, can, that we too can be like this. It's a reminder to us that the way the disciples are acting, that we too can act like this. That we all can fall into the rut of thinking that we are better than other people because of our status in life. That we all can fall into the same rut that thinking that just because we have a nicer house than other people, or maybe we have a faster car than some other people. Maybe we have a car than other people. Maybe we figure that because we have a three-figure job or maybe because we've been to college or we have the gift of dealing well with children. Like, you know, you know the parents that just can't seem to get the kids to quiet down and they hand them to like this one lady and, she, and like they just shut up 
You know what I'm talking about? Like maybe they have that gift or maybe, you know what, check this out, maybe you have a hot body or a beautiful face and you're like, my body is good, my face is beautiful, and they're not. And you think because in a certain, because you're in a certain higher class that you don't like people who aren't in that same class as you. It's kind of like that movie Mean Girls. And don't ask me how I know that. You see, a lot of, I see it also in a lot of racial, uh, you know, communities. When it gets into race, I see this happen a lot in race. And you would think that I would see it in more of the, the Anglo race, but it's not true. This, this VIP club thinking, I see more in the Hispanic race. Orale. Right? I go, oh no. Well, I'm going to talk about our people here because our people can be a little, little messed up at times, especially with the Hispanic women. No offense to Hispanic women here, but many get mad at each other. Many hold grudges with each other. Have you ever seen a mad Hispanic woman? Get out of the way. You know, talk trash to each other. They talk trash about each other. Why? Because they don't like other women because some of these other women might be better looking than them. I, but she got her makeup. You know, they might be better off financially. I, but she, she, she thinks she's all big. She thinks she's all good. Or maybe uh, they might be better with kids. And, you know, I, this chick, didn't she take care of her kids so good? Or maybe she has a better boyfriend. I, but she thinks she's all big because she, she has a man. You know, like women in Hispanic culture tend to do this. All of which show a lack of Jesus in their hearts for treating other people like that just because they are different than them. Jesus' response to John's selfish thoughts in this one passage um, is something that we all need to understand and grasp. Jesus gives us a blueprint of what we all need to follow. It's something that we all should be practicing normally in our lives, what his response is. Check this out. This is verse 39. Jesus says this, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus' response to the disciples shows us a nature of his kingdom. He told them not to stop the man. He says, don't stop that guy. He's doing something good. And in essence of him saying that, he's really saying to the disciples, listen, it's not all about you. It's not all about you. See, God's awesome work is not limited to what he is doing in your life. God's amazing work and what he's doing to the world is not limited to what he's doing to you personally in your life. Your life is merely a drop in the ocean compared to the many drops of works that God is doing throughout the world and over time and over history. The problem is, is that many of us will judge our perception, our view of God based upon what he is doing or not doing in our own personal life. And we think that God is so good and so great because I am blessed and highly favored because I have a nice car or this or that. And so we, we love God and we think God is awesome. Or we think that God is just a tyrant and a legalistic, you know, whatever, you know, tyranny type guy over us and he doesn't allow us to do things because we don't have the nice car or the nice job. We think what could be wrong with God if we don't have these blessings in our life? And we fail to realize that just because God isn't working in our life that we we think God doesn't work at all. Jesus' response to the teaching 
is teaching us that while he gave the disciples the, the power to cast out demons and the privilege to walk with him and the insights upon you know, when he was at the, uh, the mountain when the transfiguration happened, that, that even though all these things happened, ultimately it's not about building up just 12 disciples. That it's not about just building up a small clique or a personal relationship with him. It's about a bigger, greater, you know, concept here. That God's work is not solely based upon just to save your life. His work is based upon something greater. In fact, when Jesus' earthly ministry ended, he had more than 12 disciples. He had close to 500. It wasn't about just one or two disciples or 12 disciples. It was about making a kingdom for his Father here on earth to, to be building his kingdom. So please don't be offended when I say this. The world revolves around something great and awesome. That something great and awesome is not you. We'll find our worth in something else. We find our worth in, in something else other than just what we feel to get, that, we, that the world tells us we are. We find our worth in something else in verse 41. Look at verse 41. It says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to you to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. See, inside man's kingdom, inside the kingdom that, of the world, significance and worth is determined by not what you're able to do or bring to the table. It's, about how, it's not about how talented you are. I'm sorry. Inside man's kingdom, significance and worth is determined by what you bring to the table. Inside man's kingdom, your significance and worth is determined by how beautiful you are. Significance and worth is determined by how talented you are, what you can do, how skillful you are. Significance of worth by the world standards is determined by how much money you have in your bank account, how much money is in your 401k. Even if you, even if you have a 401k or a, a thrift plan or some type of you know, uh, you know, expense account set up, um, significance in the world is determined by what accomplishments you have done in your life. Hey, house, check off, marriage, check off. Significance in the world is determined by what you have done in the world. But what determines your entrance into the kingdom of God, into the significance in the kingdom of God, is not by what you have done, but by your faith. What determines your entrance into the kingdom of God is faith, the faith that is displayed through your love for God and your love for God's people. Let me say that again. A faith is what determines your entrance into the kingdom of God. And it is a faith that is displayed through your love of God and your love of his people. Whether you've done something as great as casting out a demon or as small as offering someone an ice-cold glass of lemonade because they're homeless or whatever it is, you have done something, if it's done within the right motive and your faith of your heart is based upon glorifying God, then you will surely earn your reward. Entrance into God's kingdom is not determined by what you can do for God, but more rightly what God has done for you. His power, his beauty, his riches, his greatness, and his accomplishments, and his works determine it. For as Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, For all things are from him, and through him, and to him. To him be the glory forever. So our significance in life should not be determined by what kind of car we drive, by what kind of house we have, by what we have. Our significance in life is much deeper than that. Our significance in God's kingdom is more determined by our faith in him. And where our heart is, is our heart self-centered like the disciples were? Hey, they don't follow us. Or is it more God-centered? Hey, he's not following 
you. Because if the disciples would have been thinking about God-centered, they would have encouraged this non-believer. But how do we know where our heart is? How do we know if we are self-centered or God-centered human beings? How do we know where we're at? How do we know if we should be repenting for building up religious cliques and glorifying ourselves and focusing on how awesome we are? Or how can we be rejoicing in the fact that God is sovereign in our lives? How can we be determining whether we are self-centered or God-centered? Well, I'm glad you asked, because God actually gives us a bit of a, uh, a litmus test, so to speak. A litmus test is a, is a one-question test that determines yes or no on whatever subject we're looking at. It's actually given to politicians, and it determines whether or not they will be entered into a ballot or a nomination for, for a seat in whatever government they're into. It is called the litmus test, and Jesus gives us two litmus tests here. And it goes like this. If you read verses 41 through 50, it says this. Jesus tells the disciples, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame and with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm dies and there, I'm sorry, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone who will be salted with fire, for salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus is painting a very graphic picture here for us when it talks about how to deal with sin. He's using terminology like cut off your hand, cut off your foot, tear out and gouge your eyes out. When he's speaking about fighting with sin, he's using this graphic terminology. And the first test is this. It deals with, the first test is this. The question is how do you fight sin in your life. To determine whether or not you're self-centered or God-centered, the first question is, how do you fight sin in your life? If you're self-seeking, obviously, you're not going to be fighting sin. If you're a self-seeker and if your heart is self-centered, you're not even going to think about fighting sin. You're going to be keep indulging in your lustful desires and, and your passionate acts. You're going to keep seducing yourself into these desires all the time. You're going to keep doing prideful acts. You're going to keep living a life of pride and luxury. You're going to keep an outright disobedience to God because you are in turn selfish. You don't even think about God when you do these things. He's not even in your mind. But if you're God-seeking, you're going to show no mercy against sin. You're going to actually make war against your flesh. And as a t-shirt I have back at home says, you're going to murder your flesh. You're going to make war against the things and desires that your body wants, the things you want. It is the call upon every believer. It is normal Christianity to deal ruthlessly with sin. Let me say that again. It is the call of every believer. It is the call of normal, 
basic Christianity to deal ruthlessly with sin. Not mediocrely, but ruthlessly. The depressing thing is that most of us don't even do absolutely nothing to battle our sin. Most of us do absolutely nothing to take wage war in battle and sin. We think a simple prayer is a significant attack upon the army of, of, of sin. And while prayer is powerful, and prayer is a great thing, it is not enough because James says faith without works is dead. You've got to do something about it. Jesus mentioned the hands and the feet and the eyes. And to this, he said this because he basically was trying to say, if anything that you see, anything that you do, or any place that you go, if anything that, that, that you do see or go, if anything like that draws you away from me, it is better for you to just amputate that body part, amputate that thing, take that thing out of your life. It is better to do that. Amputate it from your life. But be aware, amputation is a painful and messy thing. Amen? It's painful and messy. And even though Jesus isn't speaking of a literal amputation, I mean, come on, how practical would that be? We'd all be walking around with no legs, no hands, no eyes. We'd be blind stumps walking around. The amputation he is talking about is still very, very, very painful. Just think of it like this. If you have to quit your job because it is a doorway into sin, and you take a major pay cut, that hurts. That's painful. When you have to stop using a smartphone and go back to using a flip phone because you're addicted to the website you shouldn't be looking at on that device, that hurts. That's painful. When you lose friends because all they want to do is drink and party and go out, and you know that God says that when you do those things, that even though that, you, know, you think that you have freedom in that, but it causes you to do more and more and more sin, when you do those things and you walk away from that life, and your friends say, where you at? Where you been? It's been a while. And you say, I can't do that no more. It hurts. It really hurts. And when you move out of your apartment because your boyfriend or, or your boyfriend or girlfriend, because you know living together with them and having sex before marriage is a sin, it hurts. They might break up with you. They might say that, hey, this relationship was based upon that, and if that's the case, you really shouldn't be with them to begin with. But all of these are marks of a believer. Remind you of that. All of these are marks of a believer, not a super Christian, but just a normal Christian. At basis, this is what we should be doing. Normal Christianity is based upon ruthlessly attacking sin. The call upon every believer is to love Jesus more than anything else in this world that has to offer. I'll say that again. The, the call of every believer is to love Jesus more than anything else this world has to offer. In, in this life, in this world, it, anything above that, it, Jesus is above all of those things. Loving Jesus looks like cutting off anything that would cause you to be dragged away from him. That's what loving Jesus looks like. The first test is pretty head-on. Are you willing to deny yourself to follow Jesus? How are you fighting sin? Are you willing to deny yourself, to amputate something from yourself to follow Jesus? But the second one is even harder to answer. And this first one you struggle with, the second one you're going to really struggle with because it gets even deeper. We've heard this message of amputating uh, many times before. In fact, Jesus spoke about it on the Sermon of the Mount back in Matthew and he talks about, you know, if something in your body causes you to sin, it's better to amputate it, to gouge out your eyes if it causes you to look lustfully at a woman, whatever it is. What it causes you to do that, 
you know, amputate that from your life, get away so you can be saved. So that you can be saved. But what Jesus is saying in this context is not so that you can be saved. It's so that others can be saved. See, many people will be willing to amputate a limb to save their life. I think about the movie 127 Hours with James Franco in it. Uh, I've never seen the movie, obviously, but I've heard the story before. Uh, it's based upon a true story of a guy who went rock climbing one day. And he's out there, and he's, he's rock climbing. And as he's out there, and he didn't tell anyone where he was going, uh, an accident happens, and he falls between this, this crevice. And as he falls, there was a little bit of a rock slide on top of him, and his arm gets, like, cut, you know, like trapped between two rocks. And he's literally trapped from the forearm up, and he can't get out, and he's, like, stuck in between these two rocks. And for 127 hours, he stayed there, and he had to wonder what he had to do. And he was left with this choice. He said, I can either stay here and die because no one knows where I'm at. There's no one going to come, you know, look for me because I didn't tell anyone where I was going. Or he said, I have a pocket knife. And he takes the pocket knife and he opens up the blade and he says, or I can amputate my arm to save my life. Because if I amputate my arm, I can walk away from this. And when we're put in that situation to where it's life or death, we are willing to take the knife and to just purely saw off our arm. Why? Because life over limb. We have a saying in firefighting and in rescue. Hey, life over limb. If I got to break your arm to get you out of this hole, I'm going to break your arm. If I got to break your leg to, 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 to get you out of this place, I'm going to break your leg. Whatever it takes to save your life. See, many of us will do that. We will, we will sacrifice and amputate anything in our life to save our life and to, to go to heaven. We will do that. Whenever it comes time to quit that job or to, to lose that friend or to give up that addiction, you're going to do it because ultimately you know that you want to have life in heaven with Jesus. But when we're faced with life or death, some of us would do that. But look again what Jesus said. In verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And he starts talking about amputating his, your own hands and your own feet and you're gouging your eyes out. And who's he talking about when he talks about these little ones? He's talking about that new believer who's casting out demons and disciples and the like. Jesus isn't talking about amputating your body part in order to save your life. He's talking about amputating a part of your life in order to save someone else's life. And that's hard to do. See, it's not all about you, remember? It's not all about you. Jesus challenges us, the believer, to constantly die to ourselves. And we as normal Christians should always be putting the needs of others before our own needs. And, may, and while we may be willing to lose a limb for our own salvation, are we willing to do the same for someone else? In fact, the person who's sitting beside you. Are you willing to lose that limb for the person sitting beside you? That might be easy for some of us because for some of us, a certain person sitting beside us is our husband or our wife or our child or our best friend, boyfriend, and girlfriend, whoever, our niece, nephew, brother, sister. It's someone that we probably like and love, most of us. The person sitting next to you is someone you like and love, and you're willing to do that because it's someone you love and someone you really care about. But are you willing to do the same for the person you don't really like that much? 
Are you willing to, to amputate and to get rid of some part of your body or some part of your, your life that is dragging you to sin? Are you willing to do that for the salvation of someone else within the church? Even if that someone is someone you don't like that much, or it's that girl you hate because, you know, she talks trash about you all the time, or it's that person who doesn't believe exactly how you believe, and so that causes strife in this relationship. Or it's that person who's lazy and never does anything in the church. Or it's that person who constantly screws up. Are you willing to sacrifice something for that person's salvation? Are you willing to give up uh, something for the salvation of someone else? Maybe that means in order to be a good role model for your kid, you need to stop drinking or partying or smoking. You need to amputate that part of your life so you can be a good role model for your kid. In order for you to be able to lead an addict to Christ, maybe you need to gut check yourself and look at dealing with your addictions first. Maybe in order for you to witness to those who are in sexual sin, maybe you need to abstain from sexual sin yourself. No right to defend biblical marriage when we can't even get it right within ourselves. The majority of the church is having sex outside of marriage, living with the opposite sex, addicted to pornography, going through divorce, and we think we're a role model of what God wants us to be. No. In fact, it says that in the book of, uh, I think James, it says, before you even attempt to, uh, to, uh, to disciple someone, look at the own log in your own eye. Take out whatever, it's not this, I'm sorry, it's in the book of Matthew. Before you look into discipling and actually, you know, correcting someone else, look at your own life. What does God has, has, what, what work does God have to do in your life? Sorry. Rant. See, God missed, I mean, so John missed and failed the test here today. He was self-centered versus God-centered, but eventually he got it right. This is the hope for us today. The lesson for God, um, for John, was to learn that loving God equals loving God's people. And the lesson for us is the same thing today. That loving God means loving God's people. John finally got it right. In fact, wrote a whole book about it, the book of 1 John. And he's shown us the impossibility to say that you love God but don't love his people. And here are a few of his scriptures. They're not on the board, so just listen up. 1 John, this is 1 John 2, 9 through 10, says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 1 John 3, 10 says, By this it is evident that who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He says, if you don't love your brother and sister in Christ, you're really not in God. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, this is 1 John 4, 20, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. 1 John 4, 20. John was able to write these verses because he saw and experienced something change in his life. He was selfish for so many years, self-seeking. His kingdom was to be built instead of God's kingdom. But one day he saw something. He saw something different. In fact, he saw Jesus lay down his life for them. 
And this is how we can be a people that don't just look out for our own salvation, but look out for the salvation of others. This is how we can be on the lookout for the salvation of others. I'll end with this. Jesus had his salvation guaranteed. Jesus had his salvation guaranteed. He was already in heaven. He was with the Father already in heaven, sitting on the right hand of God. And he was only concerned, if he was only concerned with his own well-being, his own holiness, he could have stayed there. He would have never left. But he did. And he wrapped himself up in flesh and surrendered his heavenly being for the being of an earthling who is suffering, ultimately, and who eventually would die. He surrendered his own holiness and became sin for us upon the cross. And not only were his hands and feet um, cut off, also he also was completely cut off from the Father. And that's why God says in Romans that, that, that but God chose his love for us, and so while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ had everything going for him. He was the perfect church kid, if you would say. He had no reason to do what he did, but he did it because he loved us and because he decided to cut himself off from God. We should, as Christians and normal Christians, be willing to do the same thing for others so that they can earn salvation. There should be no limit to what our willingness is to do. There should be no limit to what our willingness is to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how annoying they are, no matter how deeply they've wronged us, no matter how much trash they have talked for us, no matter how much times they have literally screwed us over, no matter how many times our brothers and sisters have done that, there should be nothing holding us back to do whatever it takes to ensure that their salvation will be there one day. What if we loved each other like that? What if we were willing to do for our brothers and sisters what we were willing to do for ourselves? What would the church look like? If we were a church that constantly loved everyone within the church, even when we don't like them, even if they smell ugly, they look ugly, whatever it is. If the church was to do that, what would the city look like? Jesus wants us to know that it is not all about you. That we are to do whatever it takes to be free from sin and do whatever it takes to ensure that others do the same. And we are to love one another. For as Jesus said, this is a new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. Also, you are to love one another. Let's pray.